Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Daniel Sanders. Uh, He's part of uh, Marigold Laboratories, LLC. He's a co-founder, advisor, and a director of research and business development, part of Guella Mushrooms, G-W-E-L-L-A. Again, co-founder and uh, chief scientific officer there. So, Daniel, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you would, are you a mycologist or what's your professional designation? And, you know, what's a little bit of your history and how you got into mushrooms? Yeah, so I've actually taken kind of a uh, less than direct route to mushrooms. My actual degree is in molecular biotechnology. I was originally studying genetics. And um, shortly after graduating, I was with a laboratory. We decided to expand out into analytical chemistry. Essentially, we uh, built the laboratory from the ground up to analyze Schedule One substances. This is all under DEA exemptions, and we also have a clinical trial site in hand as well. And a lot of my progress forward towards mushrooms was basically spawned during my years in college and some of my research. You know, it was always something that I wanted to pursue, but I didn't know what path forward. So when the opportunity arose to be involved in the Schedule One, uh, you know, uh, license and analysis facility, I, I jumped at it. So that, that was kind of like my core backbone in science. And from there, I moved forward into extract and essentially product development that found my way into Guella. And so now I work with Guella, essentially formulating all of our products, looking over any sort of trials that we need to be doing, exploring new bioactives. And I also work with another group where I am growing mushrooms under Schedule 1 exemption licenses in Portugal as well as the United Kingdom. And so I spent a lot of my time between three, three, four countries at this point, investigating how we can further integrate mushrooms into both our medicines as well as into our daily lives through functional products. 
So what kind of mushrooms are you focusing on? Are you doing like lion's mane and reishi or are you doing psilocybin and, you know, focusing on those? So Guella is a forward-facing brand that we are taking a very proactive approach, furthering our understanding and the public opinion on psychedelic products. Our first product is a functional product. It contains various kinds of mushrooms, such as lion's mane, cordyceps sinensis, uh, things of that nature. It's our first entry product. You know, we're also releasing various psychedelic support tools. And, and really, we're trying to further the support within the industry as it is getting quite a bit more talked about and will continue to be talked about more through the coming years. And so that is primarily functional based at this time. And we will start having some psychedelic products towards next year. And the other group I work with, that is all psychedelic medicines. So that is all cubensis species both the mycelial mass as well as the fruity body. And so with that, I am actually growing the mushrooms, extracting them, and creating the end product for clinical trials for an end goal of having a medicine. So I personally, I kind of straddle both ends of the scope of, you know, functional medicine as well as, you know, traditional clinical trials medicines. Yeah, that's really cool. Does everyone just eat the fruiting bodies or are there any mycelium-based products that people can consume for health or for psychedelic use? So there's a big argument that goes on in our industry. Is it better to consume mycelial products? Is it better to consume fruity bodies? I take the approach that it really matters what bioactives you're after and what overall effect you want. And that's one thing that I can say almost in any industry is there's always better products, but it's what are you after? What are you trying to create? So like for, say, our Mojo Gummy, that's a composition that contains both mycelial mass as well as fruity bodies of various mushrooms. We got a Cordyceps Militaris, which is a mycelial-based extract. We've got Cordyceps Sinensis, which is also mycelial-based. And then we have Lion's Man, which is a fruity body. And so it just really depends on what bioactives you're after. Um, same thing with, with projects in, for psilocybin. You know, you can go after mycelia or the whole fruity body. It just really depends what bioactives you're after. And it, it goes a little bit further than that as well. So what substrates were these mushrooms grown on? You know, what do the genetics look like behind the particular strain in itself? Just because I have a cordyceps sinensis strain and you have a cordyceps sinensis strain, they're not going to create the same byproducts like 100% of the time in the same concentrations to make the uh, disagreement or the argument a little bit less, a little bit more complicated, I guess. There's not a clear-cut answer. And I say you should always pursue going after the, the active ingredients that you're wanting to consume. Well, what kind of um, products show up in mycelium versus fruiting body? I'm sure a lot of people have studied the difference, right? And at least there, and so it sounds like every grow will be different in composition a bit. I don't know how much variation there is, but in general, like if you lion's mane, have people studied the fruiting body versus the mycelium and looked at the chemical composition and seen a big difference? They have. They have. And so I've, I've got a couple of examples that we can talk about. One is in lion's mane, the actual fruity body versus the mycelial, some contain compounds that are attributed in early clinical studies show this, that they, they contribute to essentially neurogenesis, which is a, us regrowing our nerves, regardless of if it's for sensations of touch or cognitive ability. 
the clinical trials that were done were specifically looking at cognitive decline. So they showed that lion's mane was able to help with potential cognitive decline. The other one that I think is more interesting to look at that isn't necessarily easy to find in, in literature is cordyceps sinensis is a product that is hugely, hugely expensive to buy. This is the mushroom that is known to go into grasshoppers and various insects and essentially hijack their system and grow out of these bugs. Well, this mushroom is, is essentially one of the rarest and most expensive mushrooms to buy. It grows over in the Himalayas. And due to that fact, we've got an exclusive license for a proprietary mycelial-based cordyceps sinensis that has all the same bioactive properties and molecules of interest, such as cordyceptin and ergosterols and things of that nature, at the equivalency of what the rare Himalayan is. And, and keep in mind, Himalayan mushrooms can be anywhere from $400 to $1,000 per pound. And so um, that's one thing that's very interesting to explore is how we can further modify some of these mushrooms and the mycelial strains through breeding or whatever means we need to, to be able to actually create the active medicines that are in each, each product. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. In psilocybin, if you look at mycelium versus the fruiting body, what do you see there? Have there been studies on that? There's very limited literature around that. And the limitations in literature is there's two or three key source papers that show that psilocin is found in prevalence as well as psilocybin in the mycelial mass. It is, it is one of the key reasons why most countries, the mycelia is actually illegal as opposed to spores. And that's because many countries outlaw the actual psilocybin and psilocin. They don't outlaw the mushroom itself. So when you see people purchase spores online, things of that nature, that's essentially how they're getting them is because at spore stage, there's no active constituents. There's no psilocin, there's no psilocybin, anything like that. Now, when they, they are then germinated and then grown on agar plates or liquid culture or downstream on substrates, the mycelia itself does create small amounts of each active that could be present inside of the, the fruiting body. And so that's when, when these products start illegal by most country standards outside of a, a research facility. Um, with that said, in my analyses and extracts and things of that nature, I have seen that there is both psilocybin and psilocin in concentration, decent concentration. Same thing with fruity body, but with fruity body, you get a larger amount of those active constituents by, by volume and by mass. And that, that's also reflected in current literature. But again, 
you said there's not much known about the mycelium psilocybin and what's in it. Have you been able to look? Like, do you have a license where you're able to grow it and examine it? Or, you know, how do you run into it? Yes. So I work with a pharmaceutical research facility called Albert Labs, where we are essentially doing that. We're growing out mycelia and other mushrooms to understand what other bioactives are inside of the products that we are growing. And that is to essentially take the extracts downstream into a final medicine that is more broad spectrum than what other people are investigating for uh, individuals with various unmet medical needs, such as, you know, depression from cancer and things of that nature. With that said, with our early investigations, we are seeing that there are key active constituents in mycelia that is more interesting and more prevalent to get from the mycelia than we would ever want to get from the uh, mushroom themselves. So we are seeing that. We're, we're at the early stages on the, on the analytical analysis side of things, though. That is just to clarify, because I, I do reside in the United States, and that is all under a research license, both in Portugal as well as in uh, Manchester. So we, we have all proper Schedule One um, exemption licenses, as well as the ability to manufacture and produce clinical medicine. Oh, good. Okay. When someone consumes mushrooms, are they consuming parts of the mycelium anyway? And are there trapped spores or spores on the mushrooms that people are consuming as well? Or are they only getting the fruiting bodies? Like, you know, if they go to a store, maybe only fruiting body. But if they get it from a grower, you know, if I go get portobellas or something from like a local grower, there is such a thing. Will I get all these components mixed in anyway? That depends on the processor. So a lot of times when people consume raw fruity bodies, obviously you've got the whole fruity body. You can see it there. You bought it from a producer. You know, say you went out and bought some shiitakes, you, you can see what you're consuming. But a lot of times when we buy raw goods, raw powders, they are actually um, extracts or they have been powderized. So you don't ever get to actually see the mushroom itself. And so uh, most providers will grind up the whole fruit of the mushroom and create an extract. So they, they powder, they grind it up, they extract it, and then they spray dry that extract, which creates a powder. And they can do that based off of various concentrations. So you can do a one-for-one concentration, or you can make it like a 10x concentrated powder. So you have to use less volume for whatever you're formulating to. But most of the times, it's the whole thing ground up. So you will get the stem, the caps, the spores, basically the entire mushroom. Sometimes you can get mycelia, you know, in there. Some providers decide to grind up the mycelial mass, the fruiting body, as well as some of the grain that's inside of the actual substrate that the mushrooms are grown in, which is kind of a big pinch point in our industry because if you don't know your vendors well enough and they're processing, then you very well could be, you know, wanting to put, say, 300 milligrams of lion's man inside your product and realistically only getting 100 milligrams just because, you know, 200 milligrams of it is realistically rice or whatever their substrate they're growing on oats or you know, whatever they chose to grow that strain on. And so that's one of the things where it's really, really important from a formulation standpoint to understand your vendors and what your internal your, what your internal quality standards realistically are. More else, you know, you run into the issues of misbranding and mislabeling product. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
Yeah, I was about to ask you that. Actually, you know, if I buy uh, some mushroom capsules, you know, who knows what's in them? How do you find out if you're getting actually what you're buying? You know, if it's a mixture of different mushrooms, you buy it from ABC company. How do you know that that's uh, what you're actually getting? Yeah, ex- exactly. It's it's very, it's I don't want to say it's poorly regulated, but very much up to the person manufacturing on how they are labeling and how they are vetting vendors. So we always, we always take the highest standards because, you know, as a very public facing company, we want a, a high quality product that people want to consume frequently and, you know, that they enjoy con- consuming. So we always vet our vendors very, very extensively. But if you walk into a store and have 30, 40, 50 products in front of you, there's there's no good way to know unless unless you've done some research on the company itself. Now there's some laboratory tests that can be done. You know we can look at beta glucans, we can look at like cordyceptin, ergosterols, various compounds that we know are in prevalence in mushrooms. But you know your general individual who's going to go to a, a store is probably not going to pay a couple hundred dollars to have their their product tested. So it's best to dig in and and understand that there is some buyer beware involved here and that it's good to understand the companies that are getting involved in these CPG products and really, really bet things out when, when you go to purchase. So any mushrooms that have just really fascinated you with their compounds that we haven't talked about or have, you know, is there anyone we can zoom in on and talk about some of the compounds and the effects? You mean besides like Cubensis or including Cubensis? Well, is Cubensis... Is that the genera or is that, that's not the species, is it? Or what like, is it? What's um, the full name? Like the psilocybin containing mushrooms, those those ones, the ones with probably the highest okay. medicinal use, in my opinion. Okay. What is, yeah, what are some of the compounds and, and how do they work? Like you mentioned psilocin. Can you talk a little bit about, more about that? And what are some of the ancillary compounds that, that ride along with it that make the effect broad spectrum and effective? Yeah, yeah. Many people know of cubensis type mushrooms and there's various lineages. You know, all the way from Mexicanas down to the general cubensis that most people know. And, you know, some people have experienced a lot of the compounds in those mushrooms are very similar in structure. They're isomers, which means they're very similar molecular weight, molecular structure, but pharmacologically they are very different. You know, keep in mind, all these compounds are 5-HT2A agonists. And what that means is they bind closely, very strongly to our serotonin receptors. And serotonin has various effects within different parts of the body, but what most people know it for is regulating, help regulating mood. You know, that's how SSRIs work. That's how various other pharmaceuticals work to help our moods. Well, psilocybin and psilocin has a very strongly coupled mechanism to those receptors. And in many ways, when they bind, they shake up the system that our body is most used to. You know, keep in mind that scientists, we've tried studying this for a long time and haven't been able to due to, due to law. But I, I believe through the next few years, we'll get a firm understanding of how this works. But within this close binding, this agonism, it essentially causes the brain to talk with different regions that it wouldn't normally speak to. So you know, your, your, your cortex may strongly talk to your, you know, your limbic system or hippocampus and like, it just really just takes, shake things up, which is, is really, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating things about these mushrooms is their potential for medicinal use in models such as 
you know, clinical depression, PTSD, addiction of any sort, you know, alcohol addiction, let's say opiates, cigarettes, things of that nature. There's there's studies on pretty much all these things being conducted right now or have concluded that, that they are good uses. And so that, that's probably the most fascinating things about these is that really hold a key of shaking up the cyclic nature of humankind. You know, one of the things I believe that causes a lot of depressive issues as well as addictions is we as human beings tend to latch onto things quite easily. You know, we get very tied up in, in cyclic nature. And in doing so, you know, it's, it's very easy for days to turn into weeks, to turn into months, to turn into years, and concurrent damage occurs regardless if it's addiction, depression, things of that nature. And so what's been the most fascinating thing to see as these clinical trials conclude is just about every single one of them have said that there's about 70% plus efficacy at these drugs working. And the only thing that I can use an understanding of, of aligning all of them is it really does shake up how our default mode is and how we concurrently get stuck in these this cyclic patterns. You know, it shakes up our pattern system and allows us to understand how we're stuck within those patterns. And so from a medicinal standpoint and from understanding a lot of illnesses, concurrent damage, I think those compounds, psilocybin, psilocin, any of the isomers, are really the, the key compounds in, in medicinal mushrooms that, that we need to thoroughly explore through the next 20, 50, 100 years. You know, these, these things are absolutely fascinating to deal with. Yeah, I know I spoke to some of the folks at Johns Hopkins that are doing some of the clinical trials with psilocybin. And, you know, they were saying so far the results are amazing. And people with like treatment-resistant depression seem to be going through a protocol of two sessions. I don't know how far spaced apart, but a significant percentage of them are experiencing relief for sometimes six months. So it's, it's really uh, holds a lot of potential and promise. It's really the one medicine that I've heard of besides like antibiotics and things like that, that, that you can take one dosage, a couple of dosages of, and not only do a lifetime of therapy in that six hour experience, but also walk out of it being more or less healed for six months to a year. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about it because our current models is, you know, someone comes in with an illness that they have every day, we prescribe a medicine, they take it every single day for potentially their whole life until they work through whatever's going on. And what's interesting is like, this is a, these are, like you said, one or two experiences, and they're, they're through it. They're through it, or at least they're more through it than they've seen the other side in five or 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's really, really encouraging. Have you run into any literature or seen personally any unusual or really surprising effects from, from psilocybin on people besides, or in addition yeah, I, to what we discussed? Yeah, I think the biggest thing in literature shows this is there's a couple of things like that, that that pop up. One is the huge variability across individual response. You know, in, in, in literature, we show, I'm working very closely with, with one of the top tox, toxicologists in the world right now on this, but one of the things we see in literature is that psilocybin and psilocin in composition has a huge variability on their effect on the individual. So if you took it and two others took it, the amount in your blood plasma concentration can vary by as much as 25 to 50%. And, you know, when we talk about these compounds only being administered in 25 milligrams and 25 milligram dosages, you know, raw active constituent, 
that that's a large, very large variability. It's fascinating to know that because we don't we don't understand from a tox standpoint why that occurs a hundred percent yet. And so that bridges into the next part is that a fifty percent variability can be the difference between someone having very strong hallucinations versus just very, you know, standard mild inner hallucinations, which is what most of these studies are aiming for, like at John Hopkins, you know, and various other clinical trials. And so it, it's fascinating to see the huge interperson variability because we know that this always happens with most medicines. You know, people have different metabolisms and reuptake and, you know, we have a lot of variability from one another. But the norm is 25 to 50% variability across individuals. And since these compounds are so powerful, that it's a big, it's a big variability from a actual like a hallucinogenic effect. So like that's that's probably one of the most fascinating things to know, and that goes hand in hand with understanding that some people are extremely extremely visual. And what I mean is, some individuals can take these compounds, and it's all introspective, you know, very deep inner talk, thought, inner analysis. They may see, you know, their addictive habits. They may see individuals they harmed in, in their past, things like that, been buried over years. And then there's individuals who will have complete perceptual changes, changes in visual color, visual acuity, you know, that not everyone experiences. And I think there's a big open area for someone to understand what that difference is from a cognitive level and from a developmental level, because there's some reason there that we just, we don't thoroughly understand. And when we look at these compounds, you know, they really, they really open up our ability to abstract think, to abstract create, and knowing at, as how strong they are, you know, I'm a firm believer that they have a place as well in individuals you know, essentially uh, creating new tech or creating new pioneering, like we'll say products or things of that nature, because if someone's experiencing a writer's block or an inability to create or things like that, what they really need is a new perspective and, and these substances instantaneously create that. Yeah, I've heard of uh, microdosing when it comes to psilocybin, but does anyone microdose on lion's mane or cordyceps or reishi? And is there any benefit? And have you looked at the benefits of microdosing on, on psilocybin? Is that being studied? Yeah. So people don't generally microdose on cordyceps or chaga or turkey tail or things like that. They'll take a daily dosage, which is normally a couple hundred milligrams, depending on what mushroom it is, because they're, um, they're classified primarily as a adaptogenic, which means the functional nature of them compounds over time, potentially weeks, months you know, years of time. When we developed Mojo, my, which is our Guella product, one target was to develop something that was very similar to a psilocybin mushroom microdosage, which is where individuals essentially are able to think clearly, have a better focus, you know, a little bit more energy and enter, you know, just a general flow state, which is a lot of, which is what a lot of people report when they take micro dosages of psilocybin containing mushrooms. We did that because, you know, we obviously want people to have these experiences, but legally have the experiences when they need to. And so, you know, that product being 100% legal, we, we timed the bioactives to harbor that sort of experience. 
Now, in, in microdosages of mushrooms, it's very interesting to, to look at these because we can talk about the fact that they, uh, that alone can increase flow state and creativity. But there's been studies that have showed that microdosages work to both increase flow state, but some of the very, very early studies, oh, I, I think 30 or 40 years ago or more, yeah, probably longer than that, was looking at how microdosages or psilocybin-containing mushrooms increased visual acuity, uh, very, very much increased visual acuity, which is, you know, our ability to do what's called line detection. It's, it's how we shape our world. You know, if, if you imagine most objects that you pick out in a room, the only reason you can pick them out is because you can differentiate them from the background, and that, that's essentially line detection. And so one of the first, first things that when people started clinically and in a university studying psilocybin mushrooms is they discovered that that they created visual acuity, a better ability to see. In my opinion, in my experience, mushrooms in themselves, both psilocybin and things like cordyceps, cordyceps sinensis are quite active. For me, they all create a flow state of, in terms of ability to type or write or read through, I mean, in one sitting, a whole half of a book kind of thing. But everyone has kind of a variability, and that's one of the things that I always tell people is everyone's body's different. So you've got to start slow and start low and understand what your own what your own goals you're trying to get out of an experience is, and then uh, work your way towards that. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Where can people that are interested in the you know the medical benefits of mushrooms find out more? What's a good starting point for them? Uh, there's a couple sites. I, from a scientist standpoint, I like going to clinicaltrials.gov to start on a lot of this research because anything that's happening in the clinical space in the United States has to get registered on clinicaltrials.gov, both during early recruitment through their actual recruitment and through releasing data. So if you're a scientist out there, I would say start on clinicaltrials.gov. But you know, anyone who wants to look at press releases, things like that, groups like Double Blind do great. MAP does a phenomenal job of, of collating a lot of this research. But right now, there's such a large conversation around psychedelics and mushrooms in general. Just an easy Google search, you've got pages, pages, literature. Uh, PubMed has stuff up now as well. And, you know, it, it's so interesting to have seen this industry and this interest you know, further develop over the past two or three years at the rate that it has. I mean, almost every major university has a psychedelics division and or they are planning on starting one, you know. And so it's funny looking back, you know, 70 years where a lot of these universities really turned their backs on this research. And now, you know, now we're looking at 60 years later or whatever, they're all opening up their own research. Oh, thank God, at least they came back around, even though it took a long time. But it's a, you know, it promises to be a very positive thing for a lot of people. Agreed. There's a time for everything. You know, I firmly believe that. And the time when this first spawned up and was in the public eye, I don't think we as both a nation and as, you know, university structure and all that had the proper infrastructure to support how powerful these substances are, you know, and, and they're not anything that I think can be hugely accessible in terms of like uh, an entire nation being able to consume it all at once kind of thing, like what was trying to go on in the 60s. There was not infrastructure for it. You know, there wasn't 
clinics weren't getting as involved as quickly. There wasn't a, all the universities getting involved. There weren't tons of people that were trying to understand how to use these for betterment, both illness as well as for investigational medicine. And so I think we have a better understanding of that, hopefully, knock on wood, now, because everyone I talk to, you know, has a want to see these things work for the betterment of man. Hopefully that's the direction we're headed because, you know, we've seen, what, four or five years worth of what the, the opioid endemic did through addiction. And I think, you know, when we start looking at these substances as being a potential way to treat addiction, they hold a lot of good that they can potentially do. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a really interesting call. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.